Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I am here today, as usual, with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been over the past week? I have been tolerably well, Gary. Only tolerably? Well, I have a bit of an odd cough. There is a thing, which was, this was told to me, with, you know the tone of, don't worry, cheer up about it. Oh yeah, I have that cough too. I went to my doctor and he said, oh yeah, we're calling it the 100 day cough. And I thought, this is good news. Oh yeah, it's a cough. We know what it is. It'll last a hundred days. So don't worry. I think really. Yeah, my old doctor told me, and I, lo- I love it when doctors tell you this. We think it, it's, we're seeing a lot of this, first of all. Yeah, okay, you're seeing a lot of this. Secondly, we think it might be a, a post-viral after artifact. Now, it's very often true that lots of things are viral or post-viral, but do you not get the sense sometimes when you're talking to doctors, Gary, that if they haven't a fucking clue, let's just call it a virus? Because everybody knows there's nothing you can do about a virus. No, unfortunately, I know too much about the Irish medical healthcare system. So generally, every time I hear a doctor talk, all I can hear in the background is all of the figures I know about medical misadventures in Ireland. <laughs> yeah, well, tell me. And that's not even getting into the negligence figures. Yeah, we, we, we'll leave that alone. It's always good going and meeting someone, uh, talk to about your health, while trying to work out the odds of how likely is this person to kill me. Yeah, um, or, uh, without even trying very hard, but they're fine men and fine women, mostly women. I, as you didn't ask, Michael, had an excellent week. I was told you are a, you are that word that I consistently not don't say. I was just about to say, and Gary, how are you? But you you had to get there first, didn't you? So you could hear a little snipey comment type. Well, you didn't say it in that silence where you could have said it, and now you just look rude. <laughs> and I'm confident that you're going to go back with your little editing knife to make sure that there is no. There is no point at which I can say when there was no silence. You've got to put a silence in. You've got to put in three, four seconds of blank air and then put your comment in. So I sound even more of a prick. Even though, I mean, that is actually what happened. So if you hear it, listener, on the recording, that is what Michael did. That is what I did. There were, I would say, a good four seconds of silence there uh, while Michael did nothing. Maybe upwards of ten, depending on how I edit it. Honestly. I know I had a very good week. Um purely because of uh, an incredibly petty joy that I've discovered this week. Yeah. So Gript, as, as Gript grows, um, because as we try and you know acquire more subscribers to the shock, I would assume, of Leo Varadkar, um, I've got to say, Michael, Leo coming out and, and doing this whole, we don't know who funds Gript, and you know they're doing this for their subscribers if they even have any. I've got to say, as the person who's been heading up Gript's attempts to win subscribers for the last year, I feel kind of personally attacked about that. Like, I am trying my best. And then suddenly you've got the Taoiseach of the country basically saying, well, you're doing a shit job. Well, if, you know what, Gary, in fairness, it's something you say to the Taoiseach of the country not an insubstantial amount of the time. You're doing a shit job. I did think that after he said it. I was like, well, I've said it about him, so there's no point complaining about it. I particularly enjoyed two things that happened. One was because of that, we openly discussed how many subscribers we have for the first time ever. And we don't go into this because... There's no need to. It's commercially sensitive information. But also, nothing good ever comes of it because most of these people are just going to keep moving the goalposts. Yes. Because it's not being argued in good faith. But I did mention that actually Gript has thousands of subscribers. And the responses to that fell into two broad camps, which I would roundly describe as, and you can go fuck yourself, with the second camp being, no, you don't, you lying bastard. 
Um, that has been my, my rough experience of how people on the, should we say, progressive left took that information. Unfortunately, it's true. I mean, there's no real reason for us to lie about it. But Grip does legitimately have thousands of subscribers at this point. Thanks to my good work, Michael. Well, thanks to the staff, mostly. <laughs> they deserve some amount. Some of, of the credit, yeah. We'll give them some of the credit. Okay. That's very big of you, Gary. Yeah, so that was one of them. And then following on from that, the, the ads were running to get more subscribers. We started running them on Twitter. Now, we didn't do that before because the returns on Twitter were so bad. Um that there was no need to do it. But with Musk taking over and frankly, a lot of the advertisers leaving because of the um, uh, some of the campaigns to get advertisers off Twitter, we thought, well, you know, it's probably it's probably much cheaper now. We'll give it a try. And it's very cheap. I mean, it's, it's astoundingly cheap. The side effect of this has been that a lot of people who hate us have been getting inundated with ads. Mm-hmm. And apparently you can't stop them. People are complaining that even if they've blocked Gripped, they're still getting our ads. And even if they block the particular ads, they're still getting them. And that they're getting them 20 times a day. And it's all they see. And the secret here, Michael, is this, though. Those ads are targeted at people who engage with Gripped. Yes. So if you check out what Gripped puts on Twitter, or if you talk about Gripped, the ads will go to you. Now, I should put as an aside here, we don't pay for those ads based on the amount of people they're displayed to. So it doesn't even cost us money to haunt these people. But I saw someone, they put up a screenshot of it, basically went on a long rant about us. But that, when I checked, that had been seen by something like 45,000 people. And all I could think was, you will never know peace again. <laughs> because to the algorithm, yeah. that's fantastically successful. Yes. I've just, I've just really enjoyed all of these people bitterly complaining about the ads when one, it's your own fault because they're targeted to people who engage with us. And two, by complaining about us, you're making it more likely you'll see them. And it costs me nothing to do so. So I put up four new ads, which were also targeted at the same people, because it costs me nothing to do. And it seems to be legitimately driving them mad. Now, is this the ad that has a photograph of John McGurk on it? Uh, there's a number of ads. It's usually John reading something to the camera. Yeah. Um, I did see that described by one chap who was very unhappy about it as being akin to a hostage reading a script. <laughs> Which, you know, fair. I, I can see it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, it's it's now very cheap to advertise on Twitter, so we're just going to keep doing it. You know, I actually do have a degree of sympathy with them because it, it happens to everybody, both on Meta and on X. I, re- I will... Th- these there, there are certain series of ads from certain groups that just keep popping up. I, I, I'm not massively on social media. I... I, I I go, I look, I, I leave, I tend not to swim. There are certain ones, and I look at them, why are you, why are you looking at me? And I think, well, uh, it's because, not necessarily that I engage with them, but people that I engage with, engage with them. So they, the algorithm ends up firing them at me. And I do have a sympathy, because there are certain things that I'm looking at, and I think, I don't want to see this. And I, and I, and I put them on... I click on the thing and said, I am not interested in this. I want to see less of this. I don't want to see this. I block this. But it doesn't really make a whole lot of it. It doesn't feel like it makes a whole lot of difference. They still keep coming. So, I mean, if you are of a certain kind of political disposition and you're on your Twitter feed and some some people spend a long, long time on their Twitter feed or their X feed and every so often you get a picture of John McGurk and something from Grip Media I can see that that would be 
discomforting at, at, at the very least. I, I, I'm not unsympathetic to them. You think, oh, please go away. One, a single one, Michael, of the ads we've put up, and we put up, I think, four, one running already. A single one of them that we set to run yesterday has 161,000 views. And we spent basically nothing on these things. But because we're, we've set it so that they don't get paid based on who sees them, Twitter are basically just spamming it at everyone. I haven't actually seen one. But uh, apparently I'm not as heavy a gripped engager as the people who really hate crypt. <laughs> oh, I see them. I enjoy it. It's just another small way we've made their lives worse. Okay. What? You've got to find your phone where you, you can, Michael. <laughs> find your joy where you can. This is true. Yeah, and sometimes it's someone just losing their absolute shit at the fact you won't leave them alone. Uh, yeah, and I suppose if they're losing their absolute shit or something, let's face it, let's, you know, get over yourself. Just making this point, if you put a post up about Gripped and how you shouldn't subscribe to it, and 45,000 people see it, <laughs> several of those people are going to subscribe. Right. Yeah. Because they don't like you. Yeah, ex- yeah it's true. Yeah. If you have a conversion rate of like zero point one percent, you're still looking at a, you're still looking at a very nice return for Gripped. Yeah, I mean it's free advertising. They're some of our best advertisers. <laughs> also because they respond in a way which will seem deranged to a normal person. <laughs> yeah, you, and make them curious. Yeah, because you're just like some of the responses have just been way out of bounds, like just way out there, and you think. I think they assume we we would be unhappy to see them, but actually, no, I'm quite happy to see them. Because the more insane you seem, the better we look by comparison. Surely this is the lesson that I I really don't understand. And I, this, I know, is a phrase that I, I beat to death. But we're dealing, not I'm not talking here, here about people having their little lunar moment on X, but professional politicians, Gary. Professional politicians, you'd imagine, understand how these things work in media and how people respond and what will make a story and what won't make a story. There is one minister who has understood that when you have a press conference and there's a, a, a question from Grip, say from, from Ben Scaldor, that he responds in a particular way, which is friendly and engaging and emollient and personable and completely lowers the temperature of the whole thing by being a... A pleasant human being and really fundamentally diminishes from the point of view of the algorithm and getting more people in really lowers your va- lowers the value of, from that commercial side of things for gripped uh, that he lowers the value of that engagement considerably if however you are the Taoiseach you look up you listen to a question and halfway through you just walk off in a petulant way and then you go off and you go onto a radio station and you talk in this rather adolescent petulant way about it. I mean gripped are going clap hands. If you do the gripped face, uh, by the way I, I've seen some of the uh, the calendars folks and they are rather fantastic aren't they? Quite beautiful. I, I do love seeing them in the wild. Yeah they are lovely. Do they not get, that's the thing that look at, lads, basic, basic calm. Don't, re- don't, re- don't react like this. Don't give this fuel. Don't give this fire. Engage. Be polite. Smile. Not. Be nothing. But they don't. That I, I don't understand how they haven't at this stage of their lives. And these are not teenagers doing an intercert or, or like a junior cert or leaving cert debate team. They're professional politicians in their 40s and 50s and 60s. Come on, lads. It is, you mentioned like professional comms there. It is a constant thing in Irish politics that people don't seem to realise that sometimes when someone attacks another group, like let's say Fine Gael attacks Sinn Féin, they're doing it to shore up their own supporters. Yes. 
But sometimes it's an attempt to hurt Sinn Féin more generally. But there's oftentimes not a realisation that if you want to hurt someone more generally, you do not put forward an attack that reinforces their presentation to others. As in, you don't attack them about something and in a way that would make other people think that the party being attacked is authentic in some way. The thing with Grip Face and Leo and all those things, Grip presents itself as antagonistic towards an, you know, an Irish elite, whether political or cultural or financial. Yes. But you coming out and grimacing every time they ask a question or looking at them with contempt or you know, saying that you know, we don't know who funds them or things like that reinforces what Grift is saying with its audience. Yes. Because it's a demonstration that what Grift is saying is accurate. And if they're, you know, if you're accurate about that, well, then you're probably accurate about other things. A lot of the attacks on Grift, and one of the reasons why I don't really care that they're in so many of the comments, is because they do that. They reinforce what we say about ourselves. Now, some of them are just, you know, puerile insults. But then again, Michael, if I had the the first Grift ad we ran in kind of early to mid-February has been seen like 3.1 or 3.2 million times, which means some of these people are just getting bombarded with it. They're seeing it every waking moment. And I mean, you could say, Michael, put the phone down, go off Twitter, <laughs> yeah, yeah. live a healthy life. But these people will never do that. They will never put the phone down. No. So, ah, good times. Now, actually, on to, you know, more about politics as opposed to a general chat about why my week has been quite good. Yes. The referendum. I suppose we have to talk about it because it's coming up next week. Yeah. I've had a surprising amount of people calling me over the last week asking me where I think the referendum will go. And it's been interesting. Some have been more conservative. Some have been uh, more liberal. Two things have been particularly interesting. One, they're interested in this referendum primarily because they want to know will it pass. Not because they care about the actual result of the referendum. Yes. And two... Everyone is a lot less certain about how this thing is going to go than they were a few weeks ago. Now, most of these were before the polls that came out this morning. But it's it seems a bizarre referendum. My, my main view on it is this. It is largely unimportant. It may potentially have significant legal consequences. That will depend on a lot of things relative to the courts and... There's a lot of ways courts can cut this, that the impact will be limited. Maybe it has wide-ranging impact, maybe it doesn't. I don't really care if it passes or not. I think it might pass. If it passed by a very strong margin, I wouldn't be surprised. And if it went down in absolute flames, I wouldn't be surprised either. But the, the major thing I think is important here is the NGOs, the government parties, and some of the administration of the state have beclowned themselves in how they have dealt with this referendum. I think it has been dishonest. I think it has verged on explicitly lying to the public at points. And I think knowingly so. There has been, should we say, a willingness to ignore certain norms about running a referendum. And it just kind of leads to the question of, if they're willing to do that for this, an utterly unimportant referendum, which even they don't seem to care about, what would they do with a referendum they did care about. And I would include a lot of the media in that. The coverage of this referendum has been incredible when you consider some of the things that came out. And that's ranged from how they present the two sides of this to incredibly small stuff. Like during the week, an organization called Lawyers for No launched. It's led largely by Michael McDowell and is a continuation of his work on this, basically that he thinks there's uh, there's extreme concerns here. It's very sloppy and should be dealt with. 
The Irish Times article that ran on that has McDowell in the photo, but he's kind of blurry and out of focus to the side. The major person in that photo is Maria Steen, who is involved with the group, but doesn't seem to be the head of the group. And listeners may see where I'm going with this, or they may not, but I think that's a deliberate choice. I think that is a deliberate choice because Maria Steen is known and known to be very religious. And one of the things that has been very clear through this referendum is they desperately want people like Maria Steen, David Quinn, to be front and centre in this referendum. I mean, Michael, we've seen government politicians accuse people of having incredibly conservative views on live live television when those people didn't have those views just because they're so clearly aiming to do that thing. I've seen some people complain about David Quinn not taking greater involvement, but if you want this referendum to fail, David Quinn has done exactly what he should have, Uh, which is not allow them to to use him to paint it that way. But you have stuff like that. You have the, um, there were articles going, you know, who are the yes and no side here? And the no side is the Iona Institute and a few named politicians, which is to say there is no no side, but it would be embarrassing to say, actually, there's only one side to this and it's still going incredibly badly. But the Irish, um, Irish Times, I think it was, yes, it was the Irish Times, did a story there uh, on Saturday. Cormac McQuinn wrote it, and it's titled War Chest of at least 144,000 available to Yes Side to campaign in March 8th referendums. That goes through the spending of the political parties, the NWCI. They were kind enough to say some of the NWCI's general funding comes from the state. That's not untrue, but perhaps, shall we say, underplaying it. But then they get to the, um, to the no side, and there's a group called One Family, who say they're going to spend 12000 on flyers, advertising and events. Iona say, basically, we don't intend to spend anything, but we registered as a, you know, as, as a third party with SIPO, which you need to do if you're going to get involved in fundraising and spending on referendums, uh, because we did a survey and we weren't sure if that could be considered, you know, spending on a referendum. So we basically just thought we should register for, you know, why not? And that's it. Sharon Kogan also has a GoFundMe, which has raised 19,000 euros. And that is to put up posters. Now, it's raised 19,000 as of today. And there are, you know, then five days left. So more than likely, not a lot of posters are going to go up. Which is to say, the grand contribution financially of the no campaign between every group is probably going to be less than 15,000 euro. Also, I'm not familiar with the group One Family, so I haven't seen any of their stuff. So, um, slight disparity but just on the point about saying Iona are part of the no campaign Iona are saying they're going to spend no money on this so the full force of the state and the NGOs on one side and an entity which journalists seem to be desperately trying to drag into this but is spending no money on the other we we talked about this in the last the last cast I was saying that I think there is a very serious question here and what you, you you're averting to I suppose now is the fact that okay some people believe and in good faith believe that there are really important fundamental malign things happening in these referendums that there is a a sense a sense to fundamentally dismantle the very notion that we can privilege marriage as an institution that there's a change in the relationship between the the between the state and the family and there are sort of deep postmodern Marxian, particularly Engelsian kind of things going on. And there are some dark forces. Maybe that is true. I don't know. 
but on the face of it, I my personal feeling is th that MacDool is probably right, that there are all sorts of just really stupid consequences down the line here because this is a badly thought out, badly worded thing which were thrown into the Constitution and for no great purpose. It's a, it's performative. But you're talking about saying that they don't really care about this. I think that is probably true. I think they care politically, but as a sort of a long-term policy and aim, how much they care about it, I don't know. But we have seen what we've talked about the McKenna judgment and you know the state can't fund referendum campaigns and all that. But this has been a demonstration in praxis of if the government is willing to just divert the money around the corner into those NGOs that are essentially proxies for the state, then it doesn't really matter that they don't that they can't fund the referendum campaigns themselves, does it? No, there's no effective bar on the state directly funding people to get involved in Irish referendums if this is the way we're going to do things and this is apparently the way we're going to do things. It effectively makes the judgment toothless. Now, again, this is something you've talked about a lot and done a lot of work on, and I think that it's demonstrated that there are a number of these NGOs that receive so much of their funding directly from the taxpayer that it's it's hard in good in practice and in, in good faith to consider them anything but ultimately dependent and in some sense perhaps agents of uh, government policy. Now, I've also said that there's a certain amount of a virtuous or vicious circle going on here. Government policy influences their policy in the same, but also their policy influences government policy. It's it, it's something of a carousel. It goes around. It's hard sometimes to know where what begins and where what ends. But there you go. But the fact is, if as long as if they if they say, okay, we're not going to do it, but we know that we can fund you and you'll do it. Well, then what what difference does it make? And yes, despite the fact there's no no side. The polling that came out today, there's an Ireland Thinks poll. It was done on um, Friday and Saturday. When they asked people how you're going to vote on this, a very interesting thing happened. The vote, the yes vote on both of these is now substantially below 50%. Now, the no vote isn't growing larger. In fact, it's, it seems to be falling. But the unknown percentage is getting much larger. So in the poll of the 40th am Amendment, Yes is at 39%. In the poll for the 39th Amendment, yes is at 42%. Neither of these are great results when, again, you're running unopposed. Their problem has largely been themselves. Now, you said the, the law is going down. I think it depend, depends which, uh, which poll you're looking at. I don't know. I remember that uh, on at least one of the polls, the no was on 15%. And here on the women's life within the home, and we have uh, it's actually it's unclear because with the recognition of care by families no is now on 24 percent and you've got 39 to 24 now 15 to 53 frankly to me looked like an insuperable gap because 15 it wasn't so much the 53 which i thought was a very soft yes vote or 53 or 56 whatever it was it was in the 50s anyway and no in 15 now you got 39 24 now i still say we're five days out the the absence of a real no campaign now we may see that no campaign suddenly flower into life and explode and i still suspect that that number is pretty soft who knows uh, 
it 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 may it may change. I I go back to what we said before. What was this, the single most dramatic piece of information we had from any of the polls was the degree to which people felt informed about this. That to me, what was it? Eight percent of people felt they were informed. Yeah, and uh, the other interesting stat was that the more you knew about the referendum, the more likely you were to oh, vote no. no. Yeah. Actually, there is something that kind of calls back to the referendum on abortion. So I was doing statistical work on that referendum. Yes. And as it got to the end, I was being asked, you know, how is this going to go? And the point I made was this. In most of the kind of social referendums Ireland has seen over the last while, undecideds tend to break for no. The problem is always how many of those people decide not to vote on the day. And in the abortion referendum, the point I made was this. This is what happens normally because people think, you know, an unknown option is worse than the status quo. In Ireland, we had a decade of the media telling people that the status quo was killing women. So if people break as they traditionally do, the abortion referendum will be defeated. If, however, they go the other way because they think that the status quo is absolutely unworkable because of that, then it will be a crushing defeat for the no campaign. Which is what happened in the end. Actually. Yeah, because the don't knows broke dramatically for repeal. Yeah. So had we seen the um, the traditional pattern, then that actually would have failed. It was when you polled it against other social referendums, it was actually performing better than campaigns that had um, defeated attempts to change the constitution. But that was the point I was making internally. And I think I really pissed people off because... If you're doing that, the next question is is always going to be, which is more likely? Yeah. And you're like, well, we can't measure that. That's just not possible to measure. We we have polling on certain things, but not enough to say with discrete possibility. And the line I took was, well, you've had a decade of the media saying this. The campaign has started now. Everyone involved is campaigners. The media up to this point were not campaigners, even where things they said were not accurate. And... It's going to be a very difficult hurdle to overcome because even people who are would consider themselves totally pro-life, if told, you know, the status quo is killing women and if believing that, you can make a strong argument those people will morally feel bound to basically take the hit. So, was with us. But if we see the traditional pattern in this referendum or in these two referendums, then both will fail. Now, that would be deeply embarrassing. No, what they... Haven't I think you can make, correct me? I don't know if you've seen the 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 the, the bones in uh, inside this of how they did this uh, polling, but I I don't think they did this. But you know, if you're looking at uh, some American presidential polling, political polling, one of the things they will do is try and estimate the likelihood of the respondent voting. So. At a, at a very basic level, they will strip. They will always have two results, which is they will poll registered voters and then they will poll likely voters. And obviously, if you're a politician, you're far, you're actually more interested in what the result is for likely voters than registered voters, because somebody who's going to vote for, says they vote for you but have no intention of voting, it's, you know, it's not much use. And strength of voting intention, if you're fifteen to fifty fifty five. Frankly, strength of voter intention, really, it's very hard to see that the gap 
in motivation is going to be so strong on one side and so weak on the other as to bridge that gap. But when you're 25, when you're down to 29, 39, 24 with a 36% don't know, if you have a very substantial gap in motivation, then that could make a real difference when it comes to the vote, particularly if there is some momentum, and we don't know. But it looks like, to the extent there is, motive, there is momentum, it's more people mo moving to no and people moving away from yes. And so if that was to continue, then that number would narrow, and at which point motivation would come in. My sense is, and I could be off the charts wrong about this, that people who are, as you said, in one of the, the things that came out was that the more people knew about it, the more likely they were to vote no. As information increases, as people become, and the, the numbers here show that the number of people that know about the referendum has increased. So you have people say 24% on this on this poll, 24% said they knew a lot as opposed to the 8% or whatever it was in the last time. Only 12% say they say nothing, 25% say they say a little, and that would have been 50 over 50% of the last one. But as the numbers of people who feel like they know something about us increases, it may be that that note keeps going. And if the motivation factor is wrong, then there is a chance that this may be one of those funny results. But listen, we're, we'll know fairly shortly. It's only five days away at this stage. There was some good news for the Yes campaign recently. The Law Society has come out and said that they, uh, they will back the changes, Michael. Yes. Now, good news certainly, but mm, I I was quite surprised by this uh, to hear this. Um, I mean, it came I think on Friday. Uh, actually, could have been Saturday morning. Uh, shortly after McDowell launched Lawyers for No, and I was quite surprised about it, Michael, because when I talked to some of the solicitors I know and asked, you know, what was the consultation like? You know, when, how long has this been going? Basically, you know, what was the methodology of this? Several of them didn't know this had happened. Right. Which, and I thought, okay, you know, maybe this is because, you know, these people don't specialize in uh, constitutional or family law. So I don't know that many family law people. I know a couple of constitutional uh, people. So I, I rang them and several of them were also not aware that it had happened. And so the question became, how is the law society, the representative body of solicitors in Ireland, come out in favour of this referendum when so many of its members don't seem to know that it has come out in favour of this referendum and are, were fairly adamant that they had not been asked. Mm. And what it turns out happened is that although they've said the Law Society has done this, and I suppose that's technically true, it was actually only discussed and voted on by the Council of the Law Society, which is the, the body, you know, the, basically the, the board of the organization, which feels like a bit of a bait and switch. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I was talking to um, a friend of mine who I know not through the law, but through wine, and he, uh, he is, he, he's, he's, a, he's a law, he's a family law guy, and I was kind of slagging him off because I'd just seen a, a, a tweet from Alan Shatter saying, listen, the only thing that's going to happen here is they're going to have a, a hell of a lot of litigation in family law to try and unravel what the hell this muddle is, you know. And Alan Chatter is himself a very successful family lawyer. And I, I, I was saying to this friend of mine, oh, I see ye crowd, you're, you're going for it. You see a bit of business here. Do you have, I, I was sort of saying, well, do you not have enough business already? You need to go out shopping for more. 
And his response was, nobody asked me. I wasn't aware. I said, well, you just obviously you haven't been checking your emails. But there does, at least it seems to me, we may discover that there was a widespread and deep consultation and a long period of reflection because I thought I saw something saying that they had thought about this long and hard or something of that effect i don't know well the the statement the statement they put out says the law society has considered the issues involved and is advocating for a yes vote in both the refer- upcoming referendums on family and care okay now i think like obviously you know there's what they intended and there's how that's read and no one is suggesting that that was in any way intended to imply the membership of the law society, yeah, because it was clarified that what had happened is is, is the council of the bar of the law society had considered this, which I believe has uh, 30, 31 members, maybe, and not you know the wider membership, which is how I read that, and I think how most people read that. I saw a lot of people uh, crowing about this in a sort of you know. Basically, the solicitors of Ireland have looked at this and decided this is the appropriate thing to do. Yes. And then it turns out, well, some solicitors. And I would also be interested in how many of the people on the Council of the Law Society are experts in family law and constitutional law. I think that's actually quite important to know, because it could be the majority, or it could be two of them. There are lots of questions you could ask about the membership of that, but August body. But yeah, there are two, two you could ask. It's a little less impressive now. Like, I mean, you know, the first one, legitimately, okay, well, that's a serious amount of legal expertise. There's going to be a lot of people involved who are relevant there. And now it's just, okay, well, who are these people then? The general line of the of the Law Society, by the way, to this has been, uh, well, no, the members didn't vote, but the council is directly voted upon by the members. And there's a sort of, so in that way, is this not democratic? <laughs> Well, it's representative democracy, Gary. That's the same thing as we have ourselves in the doll. We vote for people and they vote for us. Yeah, but Michael, when people say they have a representative organisation, I generally don't think it's assumed to mean in this sense. Well, we, 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 we can't know, can we? We can ask. We can ask, yeah, we can ask. We can hang around waiting for an answer, indeed. Yeah, I mean, it's not like I have the phone numbers of several of their PR and management people and will ring them incessantly on Monday so I can figure out exactly who involved knows what they're talking about. Yeah, and you and, and make their lives better and fuller because of that, which is the response most people have when Gary gets on their phone and starts ringing them constantly. I'm very pleasant to deal with on the phone. No, you're not. Oh, that's just because it's you. <laughs> I, you're you are you're not a, a fair sample. Yeah, I'm special. Anyway, there were other results from the same poll, Gary, and political parties and leaders and things like that were also part of that poll. And Sinn Fein are down two, which is um, kind of debunking the debunking of the trend because last week they were up three, and. Um, as we're saying, ha-ha, maybe the, the death spiral is not spiraling so much. Here again, they're down again. So I don't know. I don't, I, you know that phrase that people love about polls, when a poll produces a result which is slightly anomalous or isn't what people expect. Oh, it's an outlier. I am deeply skeptical about the notion of outlier polls. I know they can exist, but I think that generally speaking, polls are a reasonable photograph of what happened at that moment. And then as... The listeners will know, because Gary has explained many different times, 
how you form a poll, how you format it, whether it's done face to face or whether it's done on telephone, how you ask the questions, what how you organize your sample size. Do you overrepresent women or underrepresent urban areas or vice versa or whatever? It will affect your 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 results. But anyway, it is what it is. They are down two, Gary. Finnegale is up a whopping one to twenty. Finnefall is up one again to eighteen. So Oh, the heights available to Finnefall. I know, isn't it fantastic? It's it's just Michal Martin, such a success. I remember, Michael, in those old days when Finnefall were on, you know, even low twenties. Those distant days in the past. I'm you you'll be shocked to know I'm so old. <laughs> I can remember when Finnefall was in the high thirties. There was deep disquiet within the party. That Finnefall was less than forty percent. What's going on? Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh okay, we'll we'll get to Shinfei in a minute, but the number that jumped out at me was the 7% for Social Democrats. Because in the last poll, it had Social Democrats on 7. And I said to you, I thought, that feels big. And yet here again, we have Social Democrats on 7. So that, I think that's curious. I mean, I know it's like, it's not earth shattering, or, but it's interesting. I know we, we talked about this and... and whether or not this feels like a real thing or not, and, and you know, trying to figure out how it's divided in the last episode. After that, I did actually go back and look through um, some of the older polls on this. And even in June 2023, you had the Social Democrats moving up from 5 to 6%. So it looks, it looks relatively solid, like it's consistent. Now, how that split is going to be the interesting thing, because if it's split the wrong way, it'll be, you know, absolutely no use to them sure but potentially you know very good news for them pretty shit news for labor yeah still stuck on solidly stuck on the four i tell you what i'd like to know with the show democrats and nobody will ever will do this but i holly cairns is perceived to be under threat in her own constituency um, it's it's a very it's a tough constituency for someone like her. I and I just wonder because Holly Cairns is doing pretty well on the you know the leadership ones. Mich- Michal Martin on forty seven percent approval rating. Holly Cairns on forty one percent. So I wonder if any of that is also in her own constituency if she's doing well there, because obviously for a party to go into an election and lose the leader is never a good look. And right, I don't know right now, but I know that for a while now, canny people down in that part of Cork were saying, nah, I'd have my five run on Holly not getting the seat back. There was a sense that the, in the last election, everything came together for her. Just everything fell right. And lo and behold, she takes the seat. And that for that circumstances, those circumstances to repeat themselves seemed unlikely. But we shall see. But yeah, 4% for Labour. Green's up 1 to 4. So we have 42%. That's the government. The total government vote is 42%. You'd think they'd like to get that up another couple of points, wouldn't you? Although you'd have to say that as it stands, if it if if this government was not to be re-elected, how the hell you form a government with the rest of the numbers? The likely projected results on current polls are not great for government formation. I mean, it could be done. 
it's just going to be messy as all hell. Oh, actually, there was one thing I saw, Michael, in the... Um, just an interesting aside. It's, it's, I suppose it's tangentially related to the referendum, but not exactly. It was Brianna Perkins, who is a Irish Times um, columnist. I believe she's an immigrant from Australia. Uh, she did a piece on... It was called Fairy Tales About Marriage Are a Way for Rich People to Feel as If They Deserve Their Charmed Lives. And she said that in the course of this referendum, research has been trotted out to back up marriage as the superior family structure. Citing evidence that unskilled workers are less likely to be married than professionals, the message is that marriage is what good and successful people do. Um, they might even be good and successful before they get married. And then basically goes on to say this ignores the possibility that people of higher levels of education and income might just be marrying more because that's their social norm. Goes on to talk about basically pointing to family structure to explain dysfunction has been used in black communities in the United States to ignore racial and income inequality. Blah, blah, blah. And... It has a general kind of tone to this, and it, but it contains this line. Underneath it all lurks the cosy middle-class delusion that their good lot in life is a result of their choices rather than their circumstances. Yeah. There's a couple of things I want to mention in this. One is this. The research on the benefits of marriage. Not just the correlation with good outcomes, but the outright benefits of marriage. On both, yes, finances but on familial outcomes and on a whole host of things is consistent, widespread, and fairly locked down for years. There's no real push against that in most of the academic world because the results have been so strong. And yes, people who have higher levels of education and income are more likely to get married. That's absolutely true. But even when you look at, should we say, Michael, less advantage sections of the population getting married is a good thing and a good thing more than you would think and there's lots of theories as to why that is um, ranging from very basic to quite esoteric but it's not really doubted and yet we have here a fairly well-known columnist for the Irish Times basically saying it's bullshit when no no, the opposition to it is bullshit. Or it appears to be. I mean, you know, if there's a study out there I haven't seen, Michael, that says, actually, no, that's absolutely wrong, and the other studies are, are incorrect, happy to hear it. Listen, there are certainly studies out there who say that. There are many, many studies. Yeah, because in perhaps, I, perhaps I should clarify, good studies. <coughs> well, that's a whole other subject. Um, it also, listen, there are also different questions about who it's good for. I mean, it's is it good... Uh, there are studies which suggest that it's good for the people who are married. There are even more studies which suggest it's for the children of people who are married and the outcomes for those children. And whether it, you're looking at, oh, education, mental health, uh, drug use, uh, alcohol dependency, likelihood to end up in prison, uh, likelihood to go into college, uh, long-term income possibilities. St I mean, one of the most interesting things that came out, <coughs> excuse me, was also on, on the capacity to enter into and engage in long-term relationships. What was very interesting with the studies that started coming out maybe five, six years ago, was that 
the assumption was that after a certain period of time that 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 at a certain age shall we say that that effect started to wear off and then they discovered actually it kicks in even later that people in their late 30s and early 40s uh, on second marriages third marriages demonstrate the longer term effects of being in, brought up in a fixed permanent stable relationship between your biological parents and all that but listen starting i mean if you, you could say starting back with uh, Moynihan's famous, Daniel Moynihan's famous study on the black family in the early 60s. The, 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 the role and the importance of marriage, and particularly in the context, if you remember, I think at, up until the Second World War, if we're talking about the American experience, the, the black family had in, in many respects been even very slightly more stable than the white family in the United States. Um, more likely to be married and all that kind, all the, 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 the usual things. And certainly very much so when you correct it for other factors. There's Charles Murray. I mean, I could quote Charles Murray on this uh, in his book, Coming Apart. But I know that when you, you say Murray, people will automatically just dismiss you because that's Murray. But I, I, I have adverted to before, there is a, a, a very interesting conversation which is available on YouTube, Charles Murray and Robert Putnam. Putnam became something of a, an academic celebrity some years ago when he wrote a book called Bowling Alone, which was about the decline of voluntary groups and Americans acting in their communities as members of teams and voluntary groups and how this had historically been a very important part of civic and social life in the United States. And he, he the, the title comes from the, the decline of bowling leagues, which had been a very important part of social life in small town America, where people bowled in leagues and they were now bowling alone. But this conversation, and Putnam is very much a man of the moderate left in the United States. He and Murray don't, but they have a very interesting and very amicable, but very interesting, uh, detailed conversation about issues in the United States. And I would say that Putnam would have no problem recognizing the importance of marriage amongst other things gary it's we're talking about human beings it's not a univocal solution or a univocal problem nobody's going to say okay you can just solve everything just people should get married and stay married and that's it of course there are going to be other problems there's going to be nuances there are going to be social contexts there are going to be issues about deprivation and education and state failure state interventions perverse incentives and things like that but anybody's interested i would Tell, have a look at look for that Charles Murray and Robert Putnam in conversation. You can write that, Gary, but what, I mean, what difference is it, in a sense, right or wrong? There, there don't, there's not going to be any great pushback uh, from somebody writing a column like that in Ireland because if at a very basic level, you we are deeply suspicious now, it seems to me, as a culture, to say that any one thing that one person does is better than another thing that another person does. I mean, leaving aside kind of more complex and tricky subjects like family formation, we've talked before, we're now at a point where you're not allowed to say that it's bad for you to be fat. And as, I, as listeners know, I, I always try and make the point, I speak as a fat man. We, we talk about body positivity and fat shaming and body shaming. So it's the point that it's now regarded as problematic 
to point out that it's bad for you to be fat. But if we were to strip away social context and everything, and just and, and for a moment, just look at the body as a a mammalian organism, just a a machine, shall we say? It's obvious and plain and simple that fat is bad for you. But it's so it's that's it's just it's I think it's a wider cultural problem that we we feel really uncomfortable making a point that any one thing, any one choice or set of choices is in any sense a better set of choices than another set. Because that just feels discriminatory and wrong and excluding and hurtful. Here's a here's the line from you that that I I think I quoted some of this earlier, but the full thing. Where they're they're talking about this. Underneath it all lurks the cosy middle-class delusion that their good lot in life is a result of their choices rather than their circumstances. They chose to get married, go to university, get a good job, and while it wasn't easy, look how well things have turned out. Socioeconomic disadvantage in this view is simply caused by bad choices, like having a child outside of marriage or not asking your dad to help you out with a flat deposit. These are the fairy tales people tell themselves to feel deserving of a life they happened to look into. Well, the first and obvious thing to say there is that she, she sets up a very stark and exclusionary, if you like, binary between choices and circumstances. As if there is no crossover between the circumstances you're in being, in some sense, connected to the choices that you make. Which, on the face of it, just seems like a nonsense. Oh, absolutely determined, socially de- absolutely deterministic, and it renders the possibility of somebody exercising agency to extract themselves from difficult circumstances an impossibility. But yet, a primary piece, a primary part of this piece is complaining about the bang of classism. And then you have, well, one, I, I think, one of the most, I would say, middle class and upper class things that you ever run into is telling people that they don't need to get married to be happy. Ah, yeah, seems yeah, incredibly yeah. popular and as you get up the chain it starts becoming people who are like no no people shouldn't need to get married but I absolutely will get married but you people can do what you want and there's no shame in that I just wouldn't do it because you know clearly there are disadvantages and I'm not going to mention now but the other thing of saying that people look into their lives that their choices have no impact is incredibly infantilizing yes of people and the author goes on to say that she was, you know, she grew up in a working class environment and so did I. And one of the things, I may have mentioned this before, Michael, is when you actually poll people who grew up in working class environments, they tend to actually more strongly believe that people's, uh, should we say, mistakes are their own choices than people who grew up in middle class societies. And I think part of that is because you get to see people who are clearly going to destroy their lives yeah. as you grow in a way that middle class kind of insulates you from, I think, in certain circumstances, because those people are never going to become middle class because they have traits that will ensure they don't get it. When I was a child, I could kind of tell which of my friends and which of the kind of people I knew, not with 100% accuracy, but with a very high degree of accuracy, were going to implode and were just going to fail in life. Because they had particular character traits, usually related to impulse control. It, it's I find it a bizarre stance to take. Obviously, your choices are deeply important. 
Obviously, some people are going to be born into situations where they're better off financially or their health is going to be better or they have better connections. But that is not the determination of where you go. It will impact it, but there's a lot you can do. And this, I think, is, is just absolutely poisonous bullshit. Is this what they call, a, a genuine question, because I'm never sure of these terms, a luxury belief? Because one of the things that Murray and Putnam and others have made is that if you, if you start to track, for example, in the United States, and I think this is mirrored in other, particularly Anglosphere countries, you can start, you start to track the breakdown in, in, in marriage, as choice, breakdown in the sense of increased rates of separation and divorce. That for a period of time through the 60s, shall we say, working class, middle class, upper class families kind of uh, track each other. But at a certain point, people with money in the United States stop getting divorced. Now they keep getting married. They've all, they they don't stop getting married at no stage. They stop. In fact, and that has become, in a sense, even amplified as uh, recent studies have shown. But for people who, in the lower economic echelons, that keeps on going. But the voices from the upper classes keep saying, "Oh well, marriage is just a paper pay. Marriage is not important." Marriage. But like you say, they keep getting married themselves. Uh, it's this odd thing where they, they say it, it's not that important, we don't care about it. No, it shouldn't be an issue. But they, when they make that choice and, they, and their children make, uh, are in the position to make that choice, they are very much in favour of this unnecessary institution for themselves. Well, I will say in Perkins' defence, she does say that she is not married to her partner. So, you know, hypocrisy is not something... We can say. Now, I do wonder if Perkins feels that where she's got in life was due to her choices rather than something she looked into. I find people who like to make those kind of claims, when you get to the individual about what about your life and the things that have gone right for you, choice starts to become very much more important. And you know what? Next Friday, if the referendum has passed, she may discover that she is married after all. On the, the point on children, just to say what I know will be a deeply unpopular point. Because why not, Michael? Go on. Before I got married, I looked into a lot of the research on marriage, just because that's the type of person I am. Yep. Uh, a great deal of it. And one of the considerations I had was, well, what if I have children? And the decision I reached, uh, partially based, well, uh, based upon the research I looked into, and I looked at quite a lot of research, because the point that Perkins makes about correlation and causation being different is a good point. Yes. So you want to look into it to see, you know, were controls done, you know, and you found, yes, they were. The, the research here is actually, not all of it, but a lot of it is high quality. And I reached a conclusion that in my personal circumstances, it would have been selfish of me not to get married if I intended to have children, because the benefits to children were so clear. Oh, well, I think that's, whatever about the the evidence for the married couple uh, uh, and uh, their their outcomes. The evidence for the benefits for children being in a family where their parents or biological parents are married to each other, that's very strong. And they are corrected. They're they're corrected for race. They're connected. They're corrected for the levels of education. They're corrected for economic. They're like 
they're for geography, for urban versus rural, all a lot of the studies they're high quality studies, and they're longitudinal, and they tend to be going only in one direction. I would extrapolate that point that if you have the opportunity to get married before you have children, not everyone does. In some cases, marriages break up. These are all things I accept. I'm not saying this is a perfect world with perfect solutions. But if you have the choice to get married before having children, I think, yes, you can argue that it's selfish not to do so as a general societal norm. But that sounds very much like a very much like a moral judgment to the kind that really people are very uncomfortable making. I, I don't think you even need to say it's a moral judgment. I think you can... That would, I think, you don't need to ascribe feels, moral value to it. I'm not it. saying it is, but I'm saying it feels, to a lot of people who will hear that, they will hear that as a moral judgment. And it's like, if when we talk about, and it's a reality, but most people today, most it will have members of their family or their close friends who are in that situation. And they feel very uncomfortable talking about this because it feels like they're saying that... Uh, their children or their siblings or their, or their friends have made choices which were suboptimal and they shouldn't have made. I, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that's what you're saying. I'm saying, but that is the reality of the kind of society we live in, and we don't want to be unkind to people. And we recognize. I think what we're doing, what we, if we're doing it right, is pointing out that things get much more difficult in other circumstances. I, I think what you can say is. In many cases, getting married could be suboptimal for the people getting married. It lessens your freedom. Sure. It places a lot of obligations on you. It turns, you know, it, it is very much a thing. It is still, even in Ireland, even as we move more towards no-fault divorces, a fairly heavy burden that most people don't think of as a burden because they think of it as you know, an act of love. Yes. Like it is, objectively. So for people to say getting married would be suboptimal or would limit my lifestyle and my freedom, that's absolutely true, I think, in a lot of cases. If there are particular things that you are interested in that are not you know, traditional family life. What I would say in those cases is, if you are in that case and you have children, you are disadvantaging your child for your own benefit. So, yeah. I think that's that you you are accepting a trade-off that I don't think a parent should accept. I think if you are willing to become a parent, you should be willing to voluntarily put additional burdens on yourself in order to advantage your children. And if you don't do that, yes, I think that's yeah, selfish. Most parents, a large majority of parents, do make sacrifices and make choices to benefit their children over themselves. I think I'm, I'm simply saying, okay, for, for example, one thing that's happened in my lifetime more so than yours is we've seen a, a cultural change in the way that we regard single single parents who tend to be single mothers because let's say the vast majority of cases where you have a child who and there isn't a, 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 a shall we say a historically normative family situation it's going to be the mother that ends up with the child rather than the father we from a situation where women like that tend to be socially excluded and condemned and treated very badly and you could argue that society has gone the other way and we have it's hero made heroines of and we talk about how important they are and how great they are i think that oh what we might simply say as a corrector to that is there is a it is a reality that for parents and i think and certainly for mothers in single situations life is is harder it's just a lot tougher being a parent, it seems to me, and speaking as a single, unmarried, unchilded man, 
it's a very hard thing to do. Raising children is a very hard job. And it's probably easier if there's two of you doing it than there is one. And that doesn't seem to me to be a, a complicated notion to deal with. That two people doing the same job is going to make it slightly easier than one person. The tax benefits are very disappointing, though. Well, you can blame Charlie McCreevy, amongst others, for that. I, I, I can, and I do, frequently. I There is actually one one point I should add on to that where I was saying about it being selfish. I thought it was implicit, but I should make it explicit. If you know that getting married will improve things, is a core part of that. And that's, I think, part of my problem with articles like this. The research on this is so solid that articles like this introduce doubt where there isn't very much in the research. So it's entirely possible that there are people who, if they knew that marriage would likely have benefits to them, would get married, but don't. Because the social conversation and things that you see in you know, things like the Irish Times denigrate marriage and the importance of marriage in a way that is not backed by the research. Yeah, I, I, understand, I, yeah, I understand that. I, I suppose and the other thing I would, I would want to advert from my perspective is one of the reasons I might sound like I'm a, a little bit prevaricating on this is that in Ireland today, and in, in, certainly it was truer, true to an extent there in the past, but in an Ireland post-repeal, uh, you're, it depends what you're, if you're talking about people planning to have children and somebody waking up and one morning discovering, oh, I'm going to have a child. I think from my moral perspective, even if that person is not married, my moral perspective would say that I would still advocate for them to have the child rather than, which is perfectly possible in Ireland today, to make the choice, well, I'm not married, so I'm not going to have the child. So I suppose there's a, I'm a, I have a consciousness of that is part of my issue here. Yeah, but I, I, I would separate here telling someone that doing something is the optimal way of doing it, and if they know that and don't do it, it's selfishness on their part, versus telling them that they should not have children at all if they're not willing to do that. People are ultimately animals. No person is morally perfect. People will do selfish things or cruel things or, you know, and good things frequently throughout their life in some sort of mix. Mm -hmm. So when I say I think it is selfish to do this, if you know it would improve things and you don't do it, I'm not saying... Therefore, there is no alternative, no, and, and you're or that saying, we should judge people harshly. In those contexts, in those contexts, you're talking also, I, I imagine, in those contexts where there is that simple choice that you could say, "Well, I can either have children in a married situation or have children not in a marriage." Then the optimal choice is to have it in a married situation, where sometimes people are not in a situation to make that choice because, in an unplanned uh, and unpredicted fashion, the child is coming. And marriage is not on the table. But in those situations, someone from my moral perspective will say, well, then the child should come and we should all try and do our best. I mean, as I said, people will make their choices. My real problem here is with people who induce others to choices which are not yes, perhaps the best choice. You know what they say, the man who induces someone to sin has sinned himself. We talk about sin a lot on this show. Far far too much for someone who's deeply admired in sin and it being a sunday i think now there's the opportunity maybe to send the people off to uh, mass and confession and they can deal with their sin and that's what i'm going to do so we shall be back on sunday uh, so mind yourselves and stay well all the best <laughs>